so far. Brothers and sisters, this past year the church celebrated 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. As most of you are well aware, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church doors in Wittenberg, a spark that set the church ablaze in Reformation that ultimately ended in the separation of the faithful from the Church of Rome. In the weeks and months leading up to this historic commemoration, there was much study of the people and the events that converged to cause this monumental event that rocked the world some 500 years ago. And in the years following the Great Reformation, the church has periodically been renewed through ongoing reformation. Our church federation has been forged in the fire of several significant times of reformation. In addition to the Great Reformation, we can cite the secession of 1834, the Doliancy of 1886, and the liberation of 1944. For many of us, all of these events seem like ancient history. The most recent reformational event took place over 70 years ago. Today, there are only a handful of members within our church federation old enough to remember these events. And since that time, much has happened. For many of us of Dutch descent, our forefathers came here in the 1950s to start a new and better life in Canada. And as the church community grew and our forebearers integrated into Canadian society, they had the opportunity to share their faith and their values with the broader Canadian culture. So that today we have members of many diverse cultures and backgrounds throughout the Federation. And so although the historic roots of our church federation are connected to the Netherlands, we are not primarily a Dutch church. The cultural roots that many of us share do not define the character of the church of Jesus Christ. Scripture declares that the church of Jesus Christ is a church of every tribe and nation. But in light of this, many think that much of our reformational history is not all that important. The secession, doliancy, liberation are just Dutch history. And now that we are Canadian, we need not place all that much emphasis on what took place back then. But does that really make sense, brothers and sisters? Most of us are not German in descent, and yet we place a great deal of emphasis on the events of the Reformation that took place in Germany. Many of us are not French in descent, and the church is deeply indebted to the reforming work of Calvin. The history of our federation should not be ignored on the basis of where it took place. The famous saying that those that forget history are doomed to repeat it still resonates for us today. That is because the work of Reformation is not first and foremost a historical or cultural phenomena, but rather a theological one. Based upon the history of God's redemptive work, the redemptive work of our sovereign God. We confess in Lord's Day 21 
that the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves for himself a church chosen to everlasting life. Reformation is part of God's ongoing plan to preserve his church. And so this morning, as we look at the book of Malachi, we will observe the nation of Israel following a very important time of Reformation. And rather than focusing on the people and the events in this period of Reformation, I would like to focus on how God works through this process of Reformation, particularly what God has to say to the church that fails to continue in the heritage of Reformation that they have received. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. The love of God that challenges the deformation of God's people is declared to His church, is denied by His church, and finally is demonstrated for His church. Brothers and sisters, the book of Malachi begins after a time of great reformation. There was great upheaval in Israel. The nation of Israel and Judah had experienced a great deal of hardship and suffering after being in captivity for many years. And why were they in captivity? As punishment for their sin against the Lord. They had turned away from the true worship of God. And because of the deformation, Israel was sent into exile by the Lord, being deported in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Judah, who had not gone quite so far down the road of deformation, was initially spared. But Scripture teaches us that they too were later sent into captivity for punishment, as punishment for their sins. The Babylonians probably prior to 600 B.C., started invading and deporting much of the population in several campaigns throughout the area of Israel. And after nearly 70 years of captivity in 539 B.C., Cyrus, the Persian king, he overthrows the Babylonian empire. And one year later, he issues a decree that the Jews in exile be allowed to return to Jerusalem. This is the first in a string of events that led to the restoration of Israel. Several years later, in 520 B.C., Darius, the subsequent king, sends Zerubbabel, the priest, back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. This temple had been destroyed by one of the previous invasions by the Babylonians. But by 515 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. In the following year, many exiles would return. In 458 B.C., Ezra the scribe also returns to Jerusalem with a new group of exiles, followed by a large assembly accompanying Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, in 445 B.C. And it's in this time of Nehemiah that Malachi prophesies to God's people in Jerusalem. And so the prophecies of Nehemiah provide us with much of the historical background we need to make sense of our text this morning. In Nehemiah, we read about a wonderful time of reformation. The people who had lived in exile had returned, restored by their loving God. The temple that had laid in ruins for the years of captivity was now rebuilt. And Nehemiah continued the restoration of Jerusalem, the symbol of God's church, by rebuilding the protective wall surrounding the city. And inside the city, a great spiritual reformation had also taken hold. 
The covenant had been renewed with the reading of the law. And the people had responded with a confession of their sin. And when the walls around Jerusalem were complete, it was dedicated with great joy and celebration to the Lord for His goodness. Nehemiah 12 tells us that the Levites and priests purified themselves and then purified the people. And in the final part of chapter 12, we read that the temple service was put in order and that the community willingly gave so that the work of the Lord could continue in the temple as it had prior to the exile. There was a great deal of zeal expressed by the people for the work of the church. And yet in our reading in chapter 13, we find that it doesn't last very long. But initially in chapter 13, we learned that not only was it in their hearts to give, but that they willingly obeyed the law of the Lord. Many years of exile had left the people ignorant of the Lord's command. But when we read that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God because they had treated the Israelites so badly at their arrival, our reading tells us that the people responded immediately. Nehemiah 13 verse 3 tells us that as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And that is the character, brothers and sisters, of Reformation. Reformation occurs when the church comes to the realization that they have drifted away from the truth of God's word. And in a spirit of joy, they embrace that truth once again, willingly and obediently returning to God's word. And that's what we observe in the Great Reformation. Martin Luther rediscovered the truth of God's word. And in a spirit of obedience and great joy, he embraced the historic Christian faith that is outlined in, our, in the five solas that come to us from the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone, the Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola Fida. Faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola Gratia. Grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Solo Christos, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And finally, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God. This is the same historic faith contained in our confessions and defended over the past 500 years. This is our heritage, brothers and sisters. Our God in His plan for salvation has graciously led us out of our ignorance and unbelief through men that He appointed to defend His church. He has called His people to return to the glorious light of the gospel down through the centuries. He has defended and preserved His church. And our response to this gift should be that of the Israelites in the days of Nehemiah who were quick to repent of their wrongdoing and eager to support the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. And yet this isn't often the case. Often it doesn't take long for the church to forget how God has graciously preserved His people. And people quickly fall back into the patterns of unbelief where they neglect the causes of the kingdom. And this is what we observe in Israel, brothers and sisters. 
Shortly after the rededication of the wall and the renewal of the covenant, Nehemiah is called back to Persia by King Artaxerxes. This took place in 433 B.C., a mere eight years after Nehemiah had initially returned to start the reconstruction of the wall. And it's at this time that most conservative scholars believe that Malachi writes his prophecy. As Nehemiah is gone, Malachi steps into the void. And in spite of Malachi's warnings, when Nehemiah returns, what does he find? The people who had enthusiastically supported the ministry of the gospel had become negligent so that the worship of the Lord was being hindered. The priests and the Levites had returned to their own fields because the people were no longer providing for them as they were called to do. In addition, the people were not observing the Sabbath. And after putting away the foreigners, they returned to marrying those outside the church. And really, brothers and sisters, hasn't history shown that this is often the pattern of things? After the Lord works reformation in the church, God's people receive it with joy, but in time they fall back into the old sinful ways of unbelief. And so Malachi has a message for the backsliding church. Malachi begins by impressing upon the people that he does not come with his own words. No, the prophecy begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. These are God's words for the people of Israel. Malachi is merely a messenger. In fact, his name literally means my messenger. And he comes with a particular kind of message, brothers and sisters, an oracle. This word is used to denote a message of the utmost importance. Often we think that the prophecy, such as Malachi, which is contained in the minor prophets, does not have the same weight and importance as some of the longer prophetic books. But this is simply not the case. The minor prophets receive that label simply because they are relatively short in length. But the message they contain is of utmost importance. The message was important for the Israelites back then, and it remains of vital importance for the church today. And so in verse 2, Malachi begins to relay the Lord's message to his people. He begins by laying out the facts in a very legal fashion. And the primary fact that he wants to bring to the Israelites' attention is God's love. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God, declares to his people, I have loved you. This is the same message that the Lord proclaimed to Israel before the exile. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, And it was for exactly this reason that the Lord had sent them into captivity to begin with. God wanted them to return because they were his treasured possession. Listen to the words of Amos 3 verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Remember, 
Brothers and sisters, God punishes those that he loves. Like a father punishes a child. So that they will return. The Lord in his love had gone to great length to restore Israel. And so God's treasured people had returned. To Israel and to their God. What a great disappointment. It must have been to our God to observe his people in short order returning to their sinful ways. And although Israel's repentance was so short-lived, our God does not turn away from them as you might expect. According to the Hebrew verb for love used here, his declaration of love was a declaration about past events that continued into the present. It was a declaration of his ongoing love. Our gracious God says to his people, I loved you then, and I still love you now. And so the Lord returns to his people with his declaration of love. And that is the same declaration that our God makes to his church. I have loved you. I have loved you by extending the covenant of salvation to you. I have loved you by fulfilling these covenant promises in the sacrifice of my one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And I have loved you by disciplining you and calling you to faith in Him alone. And for those who have covenant children, who have gone astray, this is a message of great comfort for us, brothers and sisters. Because the God who placed his seal upon those children in baptism has claimed them as his own. And like the wayward Israelites, he declares his love for them. They are his treasured possession. And our God calls them to return. And this call, brothers and sisters, is often executed through the discipline of the church. And that's one of the reasons why we teach that discipline is an act of love. But so often we overlook the fact that church discipline is intended by our God to be an act of love. Often we can respond in much the same way as the Israelites, in skepticism and unbelief, expressed in their words, how have you loved us? And so that brings us to our second point. The love of God that challenges the deformation of God's people is denied by his church. Brothers and sisters, the prophet Malachi relays God's declaration of love to a backsliding people. And it's shocking how these people respond. How have you loved us? They ask. The people were oblivious to the mercies of their God. All they saw was their own suffering. God had allowed them to be uprooted from their native land and sent into exile. Where they were forced to serve a heathen nation. They had returned to a ruin in Jerusalem. Their own sweat and hard work, they had to rebuild the temple and the wall. And, then, and although the temple was complete, it paled in comparison to the splendor of the former temple. Many of their countrymen remained dispersed throughout the nations. Only a remnant had returned. And their political situation had hardly improved. They still remained subservient to their Persian rulers. And what about the covenant? 
the promised kingdom of the Messiah. It still had not come. All they could see was their suffering. Are we so different? Our God has said to each and every one of us here who's been baptized, I have loved you. As the body of believers, we are loved, each one of us. And a close examination of our history displays God's love for us as well. He did not leave us on the path of unbelief in the church of Rome, where the doctrines of grace were overshadowed by works righteousness. Through war and strife and great difficulty, the church was liberated from these false teachings. Do we see the great love of our God in the secession of 1834, where the church was freed from straight oppression? Or the Dolionsi of 1886, where moralism and liberalism had watered down the truth so that many were Christians in name only? And do we remember God's love in the liberation, where our church federation was freed from hierarchy and unscriptural views surrounding the covenant? In the aftermath of each successive reformation, there was great joy to return to the true doctrine of salvation. But how often wasn't it that joy short-lived so that we are asking essentially the same sarcastic question, even today, how have you loved us? God lovingly calls us through our baptism to be active members here in this church, but we can't get all that excited about it. This church is stuffy and old, not all what I think it should be. How have you loved us? And if that's how we feel, then we have lost sight of something very important, brothers and sisters, that God has preserved His church, and He has preserved this federation through His love. Our response should be like that of the Israelites. Immediately following the reformation of Nehemiah's day, an eagerness to build up the kingdom of God and live in obedience to Him. The Lord has given us a rich heritage upon which to build. But so often we just can't see it. And when we do not see God's love in what we have received here in our own church, our thankful service is often replaced by disillusioned grumbling. But brothers and sisters, God knows the sinful pattern of the human heart and how that affects the direction of His church. In spite of His declaration of love, the backsliding church will in effect often deny this declaration. If not in word, then in deed. In deeds that do not display a thankful life. But the Lord in His mercy does not accept this denial. Rather, he proves his declaration through actions that demonstrate his love. And that brings us to our final point. The love of God that challenges the deformation of God's people is demonstrated for his church. The Lord immediately responds to the Israelites' question of unbelief with a rhetorical question of his own. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Now you might be wondering, what does Jacob and Esau have to do with all of this? Jacob was the father of the nation of Israel, while Esau was the father of the neighboring nation Edom. 
And we know the story. They were brothers. Esau, the older, and Jacob, the younger. And as the oldest, Esau was entitled to the birthright, but we know from Scripture that it was Jacob who received the birthright and the Lord's blessing. The nation whom the Lord loved would come forth from the line of Jacob. Our text says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And through this comparison, the Lord goes on to explain how he has demonstrated his electing love in the events of history Although Jacob or Israel had been punished, the Lord had returned them to their territory and restored them to his favor. Esau, on the other hand, would not fare so well. Although Edom had not experienced the same degree of political upheaval as Israel during the invasion of the Babylonians and the Syrians and the Persians, But the Lord would demonstrate his judgment upon Edom nonetheless. And there would be no return for Edom. God tells Israel, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. This prophecy was fulfilled beginning in the 5th century BC when the Nabataeans slowly and steadily settled in the territory of Edom, driving the Edoms out never to return. And like any nation that's driven from their homeland, there would be a desire to rebuild. But the Lord does not extend the same mercy to Edom as he does to Israel. God declares, they may build, but I will tear down. And the Lord's judgment does not stop there. No, Edom becomes the symbol of all those outside the covenant of God. They will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. There would be no opportunity for salvation. These events would take place for all of Israel to see. Our text says, your eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Our text reveals that God is sovereign. Over the events of Israel and of Edom. In our modern context, Israel is the church. And Edom is the world around us. And his message for the church, God's covenant peoples, remains. I have loved you, declares the Lord. You can see this by the fact that the Lord continues to preserve his church. Through all the ups and downs, through the trials and through the reformation. While Edom, the world around us, goes down the road to everlasting destruction. Never to return. This is a demonstration of God's electing love. Put on display for God's people. We should stand in awe and declare with the Old Testament church. Great is the Lord. Even beyond the borders of Israel. Some have made the mistake of questioning God's love. Because he leaves Edom out in the cold. Romans 9 quotes Malachi chapter 1. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's exactly the point, brothers and sisters. God had mercy on his people Israel. 
the church that he called to be his own. And that is what God demonstrates with his rejection of Edom, his electing love for his church, for whom he has extended mercy in Jesus Christ. Israel, his church, will not be abandoned by our God or torn down when they try to rebuild. No, you who have received the covenant promises of salvation are called, and though you fall, God calls you to return. When God declares his love for us, we should never respond. How have you loved us? Look around, brothers and sisters, at this world around us. Many are on the road to destruction, but not you, who sit here in these pews under the life-giving proclamation of God's word. You have been set apart as God's own people, heirs to the promises of salvation. Give thanks that he preserves his church. Praise him that he disciplines those he loves. Be zealous for your church by showing the fruit of thankfulness. For God has indeed loved you. Amen.